This morning I invite you to take your Bible, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. We'll be reading verses 1 to 13. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 16, let us begin at verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, Jesus said, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God, you may be seated. The parables of Jesus are nothing short of masterful. They have a spontaneity about them. There is a spontaneous as a well-spun story. There's also a level of complexity, for they are as complex in thought as a well-written novel. They are timely in the sense that it is a slice of life from the first century. Yet it's timeless in the sense that what we read there, we could also read in our day. Take, for example, the story I just read for you. You change a few of those details. And it could be a contemporary piece in Fortune magazine. It could be read on the very front page of the Wall Street Journal. Perhaps this story of Jesus is one of the most problematic parables he ever told. The reason being is because it seems that the shady business leader is commended for his less than honorable business tactics. Jesus says there was a rich man who owned a company this rich man hired the services of a manager to take care of the day-to-day -day operations of the industry. That wasn't uncommon in the first century. It's not uncommon in our day. For if you have a managerial job, you have a job that has a great deal of responsibility and trust. Eventually, word got back to the boss that the manager was skimming off the top. He was misappropriating some of the funds. He was mismanaging the financial resources of the company. So the boss called in the manager. Show me the books, he demanded. 
And once the owner, the CEO of the company, uh, saw how the manager conducted business, he said to him, you leave me no choice, you're fired. Those words, you're fired, went through the manager like a bolt of lightning. He thought to himself, what am I going to do now? I never dreamed of losing my job because of his cushy managerial position the years had left him out of shape and flabby so manual labor was out the window he also was far too proud arrogant in fact to go to a restaurant and get a minimum wage job he thought to himself what am I going to do this time tomorrow I'm going to be out of employment. What am I going to do? Then an idea flew through the screen of his mind. It was an idea that carried some merit. He thought to himself, if I could use my position, if I could use my authority as the manager here and somehow reduce the financial indebtedness that some of the vendors owe my master, that just might win me some friends. So that when the inevitable happens and I lose my job, they just might welcome me into their homes. And who knows? They just might give me a job. It sounded like a pretty good idea to him, so he got back to his office. But before he cleaned out his desk, he called all the vendors. He brought them in one by one. The first one he asked them, how much do you owe my master? The response came, I owe your master 800 gallons of olive oil. That may or may not sound like a lot to you, but in the first century, that was a pretty extreme debt. 800 gallons of olive oil was equivalent to 150 olive trees. 150 olive trees were worth about 1,000 denarii. A denarius was an honest day's pay for an honest day's work. This first vendor owed the master three years' worth of wages. The manager said, uh, take your invoice. Sit down quickly. Scratch out 800 gallons and make it 400 gallons. The vendor said out loud, are you serious? This is awesome. Thank you. I mean, you really have saved my neck today. Because of the downturn economy, I don't know what I was going to do. I don't know how I was going to make the payment. But now you have really helped me. You've been a good friend to me. I tell you what, if you ever need anything, you just let me know. The manager kicked back with a crooked smile across his face. Said, thanks, I'll keep that in mind. No sooner had the first vendor left than the second debtor walked in. The same question was asked of him, how much do you owe my master? And the response was, with a sigh, a thousand bushels of wheat. Now, if 800 gallons of olive oil was an extreme debt, 1,000 bushels of wheat was even more extravagant. It was believed to uh, be equivalent to 2,500 denarii. In other words, eight years' worth of wages. The manager said, um, sit down quickly, take your invoice. Instead of 1,000, I'll charge you 800. The second vendor was... Just as shocked as the first, he said, wow, thank you. I mean, you just, you just made my week. I didn't know how I was going to make the payment, you know, the downturn economy. We're trying to cut corners and boost productivity, but things are tough and tight. You've really been a good friend to me. I'll tell you what, if I can ever help you, 
you just let me know. The manager once again looked at him and said, thanks, I'll keep that in mind. When Jesus comes to verse 8, he throws us a curveball. Apparently, the CEO, the, man, the, the master, heard what the manager was doing. And in that moment, when you expect for the CEO to come down even heavier, you expect him to condemn the manager. It says in verse 8 that the manager was commended for his actions. Now, many people throughout the years have asked the question, how in the world could he cook the books so liberally? How could he fix them so extravagantly? And people have concluded, well, the manager did one of two things. Either number one, he reduced the interest rate so that the interest on the first loan was cut by 50%, the interest on the second loan was cut by 20%, or the manager just uh, took away his commission cost. Regardless, he, he, moved, he reduced what he would have padded his own pocket with. His crime could have been embezzlement against the owner, but in all likelihood, it was more of a crime of extortion. He probably took more from the vendors than was required, and then he skimmed off the top and padded his own pocket, built a big bank account, and nobody knew except probably some of the subordinate managers found out, and that's who ratted him out. They were probably the whistleblowers of the whole operation. And yet you expect in all of this that once the boss, the CEO, once the master finds out, you expect him to come down and really condemn everything that the manager has done. But in verse 8, Jesus says he doesn't condemn him. He commends him. He commends him because he acted shrewdly. And then Jesus adds his own two cents, making it further uh, confusing to you and to me when Jesus says, for the people of this world are more shrewd in their dealings one with the other than our children of light. It seems that Jesus commends this dishonest manager because of his shrewdness. It's like he's telling the disciples, it's not enough for you to be good not enough for you to do good. You've got to be shrewd. What does it look like to be a shrewd saint? What does Jesus mean when he elevates this characteristic of shrewdness? What is he talking about? Let me tell you what he's not doing. Jesus is not telling us we need to model our morality after the immoral manager. He's not elevating his lifestyle or his characteristics. He's not telling us we need to skim off the top. We need to pat our own pockets. We need to use people in order to make money. He's not saying you need to live your life just like the immoral, dishonest manager. But what he is telling us is look at how shrewdly he made some of the final decisions of his employment. He did not make decisions based in the here and now about how he was uh, going to live right now. But he made decisions about the future. And Jesus elevates the shrewdness of the, of the decisions of this man. When you stop and think about the word shrewd, it carries a level of intentionality, doesn't it? You're not accidentally shrewd. You're shrewd on purpose. You do it intentionally. The Greek word that's translated as shrewd actually means to be sensible, to be thoughtful, to be prudent, to be wise. And Jesus commends this man because his decision-making process was sensible and thoughtful and prudent and wise. He says there's something about how this man 
thought with the future in mind, not just the present, but he thought on how he was going to live after employment. There's something shrewd about that, and Jesus says that ought to be commended. There's something about the way the world deals with other worldly people, and it's very shrewd. And Jesus is using this term in the best light possible. So how are we shrewdly sanctified? How are we shrewd saints? I thought about it this way. What if God had given corporate America the Great Commission? Instead of giving it to the church, what if he had given it to the marketplace? What if Jesus had said to corporate America, listen, I want you to make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teach them everything I've commanded you, for certainly I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. How would corporate America go about the Great Commission? How would they go about doing it? Well, the best and brightest business leaders would at least do something like this. They would say, well, first and foremost, we've got to know everything we can about the product. We've got to know everything we can about the product, upside down, inside out, top to bottom. We've got to know everything we can about the product. And secondly, we've got to know everything we can about the consumer. What, what are those people like? What are their likes and dislikes, interests, hobbies, habits? Who are the people that we're trying to sell this to? And then the best in corporate America would say, we're going to hire the best marketing firm in the entire country. And we're going to throw a lot of money into advertising because we are so convinced in this product that we are convinced that the consumer can't live without our product. Oh, my friends, I wonder what would happen if we were that shrewd when it comes to evangelism? What would happen if we were that shrewd when it came to the Great Commission? What if we were that intentional? What if we were that prudent and wise, sensible and thoughtful? What if we... We're so strategic in our reaction and intentional in our plans. What if we were that shrewd? I think we would say, I've got to know everything I can about Jesus. I've got to learn as much as possible about Jesus. I've got to know him inside out, upside down, top to bottom. I've got to know everything I can about Jesus. And I've got to know everything I can about the lost world. I've got to know everything I can about my neighbor, about the nations, what are their likes and dislikes? What are their interests? What are their hobbies? What gets them up in the morning? What are their concerns? What are their cares? I've got to know everything I can about people across the street and across the globe. And then I've got to use everything at my disposal. All of my tools of marketing, everything, all of my possessions, um, all of my uh, position in life, I've got to use everything I can because I've got to communicate to a watching world that I believe in every fiber of my being that if they don't have what I'm giving them, they cannot live. They can't live without Jesus. My friends, what if we were that shrewd? What if we were that intentional? The truth of the matter is that if we ever have an evangelistic thought that flies across our mind, we think to ourselves, wow, that's pretty impressive. If we ever go about and have a quasi-gospel conversation with anybody, we walk away and pat ourselves on the back and say, Whoa, God must be proud of me. If we have the gumption to actually give out a track or give out a book uh, to somebody, give some piece of literature telling them to consider the claims of Christ, we walk away and we think, wow, we're awesome Christians. No, Jesus says you've got to be a shrewd saint. You've got to live your life in such a way that you intentionally, that you plan, 
that, that you are sensible and thoughtful and prudent and wise in how you live your life. He comes to verse 9. In verse 9, if you underline your Bible, underline verse 9, it's the entire point of the parable. Jesus says, for I tell you, use your worldly wealth to gain friends. For when it is gone, they will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Jesus says the point of the parable is this. Use your position and your possessions to gain friends for eternity. You use your position in life. You use your possessions in life as tools to gain friends that will welcome you, not in earthly dwellings, but in heavenly dwellings, eternal dwellings. Jesus commends the decision-making of the shrewd manager. Yes, he's dishonest. Yes, he's immoral. Jesus is not elevating those characteristics for a common lifestyle for you and for me. What he is saying is, look how shrewdly he made decisions. He made decisions not in the here and now, but in the there and then. He made decisions not just in the moment, but in the future. And for him... The future was life without employment. For the child of God, the future is life beyond the grave. So you use your position, you use your possessions to win friends for eternity. You put your money where your mouth is. You show what you value in your life by how you spend your money and how you use the position that God has given to you. And Jesus is just telling us, just be intentional about it. Be shrewd about it. Be thoughtful about it. Plan how you're going to live your life so that you can invest wisely, not in the stock market, but in the souls of people. So that when your money is gone and life is over, you cross the pearly gates. There'll be people there welcoming you that you know and that you don't know who will simply say to you, hey, thanks. Thanks for investing in the gospel. Thanks for investing in me. Thank you for giving unto God. Thank you for what you've done. Jesus says use your position and use your possessions to win friends for eternity. You do realize that just about everything in this world is temporary, and yet we elevate it as if it's eternal. But if you just survey the stuff that you have in your possession, most if not all of it's temporary. Your house, your car, your 401k plan, your savings account, your suits, your dresses, your golf clubs, your season tickets, it's all temporary. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. When it comes to your wealth or my wealth, either we will be taken away from our wealth or our wealth will be taken away from us. I've been told a long time ago that fundamentally we are nothing more than stewards of a junkyard. That's all we are. We're stewards of a junkyard. Now, some of your junkyards are better than other junkyards, but at the end of the day, you and I are nothing more than stewards of a junkyard. Because yesterday's mansion is today's boarding house and tomorrow's slums. And yesterday's fashion is today's hand-me-downs, tomorrow's gift to goodwill. At best, we're stewards of a junkyard. 
Jesus knows how we can be gripped by greed. Jesus understands how we can be possessed by our possessions. We think that somebody is somebody by what that somebody has. And Jesus says, just make sure that what you have doesn't have you. Two guys were watching a funeral motorcade go by. And the one guy said to the other guy, I wonder how much he left behind. And the friend said, all of it. He left all of it behind. More than one preacher has told you, you can't put a safety deposit box in your casket. Behind every funeral motorcade, you've never seen a Brinks truck, right? I mean, you can't take it with you. The only thing you can do is send it ahead. And the way you send it ahead is by giving it unto the Lord and giving it unto his work, his gospel, which is eternal. You invest it into people that will last forever. It's been my observation that you will either love people and use money or love money and use people. Jesus says you use your position and your possessions to win friends for eternity. Today we launched the D&D Challenge. The D&D Challenge is a financial campaign because certainly you and I can look back over the years and we can agree that God has been gracious to his church. We look back just over the last 15 years and we see impressive church growth, church growth that has impacted and influenced every phase of this church life, including a massive relocation project. Now with that great growth comes great expenses. At one point, the church indebtedness of First Baptist Pelham was some $13 million. Today, it stands right under $7.4 million. The question that has been posed to me that I've wrestled with over the last several months is how can we manage our debt in such a way that we can be most effective in missions and ministry and all other aspects of church life? The solution is the D&D challenge. This financial campaign calls for a contribution of $50,000 a month from this faith family for the next five years. You do the math and you realize that $50,000 times 60 months or five years equals $3 million. That $3 million would then be dispersed with the 80-20 principle. 80% of that would go towards retiring the debt. That 80% is $2.4 million. 20% or $600,000 would then be used to raise disciples where we would develop strategic partnerships in mission and ministry where we could invest in people locally and globally who are raising disciples. We put our money where our mouth is. This whole campaign is a campaign that's above and beyond. If you don't hear anything else, hear that. It is above and beyond. When we think about $50,000, that would come in each month. That's above and beyond your regular gifts of tithes and offerings into the work of the church. Please do not rob Peter to pay Paul. Please do not take what you would give in tithes and offerings and say, okay, well, I'll just designate that towards the D&D challenge. That's really counterproductive because we're gonna still have ongoing expenses every single month, every single year. So the D&D challenge is an above and beyond campaign. It's above and beyond, even in the sense of what we're doing to manage our debt. You may or may not realize this, but a quarter of every dollar that's given to the general fund, that's you just giving your offering to the church, a quarter of every dollar 
goes to help reduce the debt. You and I would call it a mortgage payment. You probably have a mortgage that you pay every month. Well, we as a church, we have a mortgage that we pay each month. It takes about a quarter of every dollar that is given. This D&D challenge will be above and beyond that. Over the next five years and beyond, we would still pay that mortgage payment. But the only way to reduce debt is to add more to the principal. So that's where the $2.4 million would go in to reduce the principal of the loan. It's above and beyond campaign. It's above and beyond even our missions involvement. Once again, you may or may not be aware of this, but 14% or 14 cents of every dollar that's given in the general fund goes towards mission causes here at First Baptist Pelham. 10% of it goes to the cooperative program. For those of us who are familiar with Southern Baptist life, we're familiar with the cooperative program. If you're not familiar with Southern Baptist life and lingo, the cooperative program is a ministry of the Southern Baptist Convention where literally thousands of churches cooperate saying that we can do missions better together than we can ever do independently. So we tithe, we give 10% of our general income to the cooperative program. The D&D challenge does not diminish that. We will continue to give 10% towards the cooperative program. We continue to give 2% to the Shelby Baptist Association. We will continue to have 2% for local missions right here in and through First Baptist Pelham. So what I'm telling you is that this D&D challenge is above and beyond. We are still going to talk about Lottie Moon at Christmas, and we're still going to talk about Annie Armstrong at Easter. We're still going to take up those two annual offerings for missions. So our mission involvement is not going to decrease. It's going to increase with the D&D challenge. Why in the world would we do that? Because we want to position ourselves in the flow of blessing of God. And we realize that as individuals and as a church, that God blesses those who give unto his cause, unto his work. So the D&D challenge is above and beyond campaign. You say, Pastor, how do you, how do, you do this? How is this even possible? I don't know about you. But when I think about $7.4 million, it kind of makes my knees buckle. That's hard to fathom, $7.4 million. And even when I think about that over the next five years, an additional $3 million being contributed by the church, when I look back over the last five years and the extra that came in for debt services combined over five years was $250,000, and now the prospect of the next five years, $3 million? How is that possible? And then you begin to think, how is it possible to have an excess of $50,000 each month sustained for 60 months? Well, let me try to put the cookies on the bottom shelf because I need the cookies on the bottom shelf. Here's the simplest way for me to communicate this. It is 500 families committing $100 a month to the D&D challenge. That's it, $100 a month. Some of you can give more than that. Some of you can give much more than $100 a month. Some of you can give less than that. Many can give that. You begin to do the math, and you say 500 families times $100 a month. You multiply that times 60 months. That's a $3 million. All those goals are met. And so this morning, I begin to ask you, at what level does God want you to be involved? The key is 500 families giving on average $100 a month. In order for us to meet that goal, all of us have to be in. We have an active membership of about 1,500 people. On any given Sunday, about 1,000 of us show up for worship. But we have a, 
an active membership of about 1,500 people. That represents about 500 homes. That means we need all of us. We need all of you. When you go to God in prayer, it's not really a prayer request saying, Lord, do you want me to be part of the D&D challenge? Can I go ahead and answer that one? The Lord's going to say yes. He's going to say, yeah, I want you to be part of this. Your prayer question to the Lord is, Lord, at what level do you want me and my family to be part of the D&D challenge? In your bulletin, you're going to find a card. That card's going to be there every single Sunday in the month of October. Our commitment day is October the 25th. But you can make a commitment anytime through the month of October. On that card, you can indicate that I am pledging $100 a month or I'm pledging more than that or less than that. And then there's even a space where you can say, you know what, I'll give, in addition to that, a one-time large gift. Last week, we held a leadership luncheon. Um, the leadership luncheon took place, and please don't be offended if you weren't included in the leadership luncheon. Um, I just had to define the invitation list, and I defined it this way. Staff, active deacons, Sunday school teachers, and chairs of committees. So those are the four qualifications. We had 78 families that made commitments last Sunday. Those 78 families made a commitment each month of $8,779. If you multiply that out, that's to the tune of approximately $525 thousand dollars of the needed three million dollars either way you do the math whether it's by month or in totality that's 17 percent of what's needed our leadership stepped up and said we're good for 17 percent praise the lord you can quickly see that in order for us to reach our goals we need you can't do it without you we need you so today you begin thinking and praying if the lord were to lead you to make a commitment today you can do so you can make a commitment any Sunday, but October the 25th is commitment, is commitment day. I'll also tell you this, that when you think about a large gift that could be given, I can tell you that last Sunday there were two families, both of them independent of each other. Each of them made a $10,000 commitment over and above their monthly pledges. The reason I tell you that is because God may be spurring you on to deeper generosity. He may be encouraging you because why? You're going to use your position, you're going to use your possession to win friends for eternity. So how much does the Lord want you to give? Listen, you use your position in life. If you're a coach, it's not just to teach the kids the game. You teach them what it looks like to be a godly guy or a godly gal. If you're a parent, you're a parent on purpose, not just to get a deduction from the U.S. government. You're a parent so you can teach your children what it is to follow hard after God. If you're an employer or an employee, you're in that position on purpose so you make your decisions shrewdly. You make your decisions intentionally so that people will know that you are a, are a, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You use your position in life. You use your possessions that God has given to you so that you can make an eternal impact. Jesus continues in verses 10 and following. Jesus says, if you can't be trusted with little, you can't be trusted with much. If you can't be trusted with little, you can be trusted with much. If you can't handle the property that you're borrowing, how can you handle the property that's been given to you? On two occasions, one in verse 9, one in verse 11, Jesus speaks about worldly wealth. He compares that to true riches. If you don't have handle worldly wealth how are you going to know how to handle true riches apparently from the perspective of Jesus there are some things more valuable than money Jesus calls money worldly wealth have you ever um 
taking a hard look at a $20 bill. You ever stared at Andrew Jackson? He's not a happy camper. Just look at him. He looks disgruntled. He looks mean. And I ask myself, Andrew, why are you so upset? Jesus says that this worldly wealth, he literally calls unrighteous mammon. Unjust money. I've always been taught that money is neutral. It's neither good nor bad. But it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. That teaching may be a little skewed. Because if I take Jesus at his word, in Luke chapter 16, he says that worldly wealth is unrighteous mammon. There's something about it that is unrighteous. There's something about it that is unjust. There's something about it that needs to be redeemed and retrieved. There's something about this that's inherently evil. And so then I begin to have a conversation with Andrew. I say, hey, Mr. Jackson, can you tell me about your journey? Where have you been from the time you left the U.S. Mint? Because clearly, I did not get this from the U.S. Mint this morning. So, Andrew, where have you been? Where have you been before this money came into my hands? I wonder what Andy would say. How would Andrew answer that question? Where have you been, buddy? I wonder if he would say and tell me that there was a time when he was used by a young man in a liquor store. I wonder if he would say that uh, he, along with some of his other dollar bills, were given to a young girl in exchange for her services for the cheap pleasure of some man. I wonder if this dollar bill has ever been on the back side of a dark alley, given in exchange for a pill to take away pain. I wonder if this $20 bill has ever been used by a drug dealer. I wonder if this guy, along with some of his other friends, were ever exchanged at a casino so a man or woman could get some chips and put them down on the table. I wonder where this has been. When I begin to think like that, I realize, ah, oh, that's why Jesus calls it unrighteous. Because it can be used for very unrighteous things. Jesus says, listen, use your Andrew Jacksons. Use your dollars. Use your position. Use your possessions for righteous causes. Direct it. Use it for the glory of God. Jesus wraps up the passage and he says, listen, you can't serve two masters. You'll either love one and hate the other. You'll be despised. You'll despise the one or you'll be devoted to the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The word for money used in Luke chapter 16 verse 13 is the word mammon. You can't serve both God and money. Jesus is pointing out the obvious. We can't be allegiant to two lords. We can't dance simultaneously to two songs. We can't eat at the same time at two restaurants. We can't drive in two separate directions. You can't cheer for two teams wholeheartedly. You can't worship at two altars. So you choose this day. Who will you serve? My suggestion is that you serve God. 
You serve God even using your money. You serve God through your money. Regardless, my friends, Jesus is telling us, use your position and use your possessions to win friends for eternity. You say, Pastor, what do you mean to do with this? I'll tell you this. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, I am calling you unto salvation. Jesus is the great, richest treasure of eternity. He is the crown jewel of heaven. When he talks about great riches, he's talking about himself. He's talking about a relationship that you have with him. Because of his great richness in your life, you can be at peace with God, at peace with yourself, at peace with fellow man. You can't put a price tag on that. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord in a very personal way, I'm imploring you today to turn and trust, turn from your wicked ways and trust Jesus as Savior. And while you're at it, give him your wallet. While you're at it, give him all that you have. Say, Lord, nothing is outside your jurisdiction. I give everything to you, even my checkbook. You're Christ of my heart and you're Christ of my wallet. I give it to you. Oh, my friend, if you're here today and you've accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you know the last thing we surrender to him? Oftentimes it's our checkbook, our savings account, our future. This morning I'm just asking you to prayerfully consider how the Lord wants you to be involved. What is the Lord asking from you? All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him and in his presence I'll daily live. So I surrender it all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender it all. Heavenly Father, will you show us how we can use our position in life and use our possessions in life to win friends for eternity. Oh, Father, help us to be shrewd. Help us to be intentional. Help us to be strategic. Even as we spend our money. So, Father, we give you this invitation. As you move, we will respond. In Jesus' name, amen.